This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 788, a conversation with Jed Winnick, writer commentary on Exiles. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 788. It's a conversation with Judd Winnick. It's a creator commentary on Exiles. Uh, Judd Winnick actually was the original writer on the fabled Ex- Exiles run, uh, which was uh, done uh, with some amazing art in the first couple years by Jim Califiore, but uh, Mike McCone was the one who actually kind of started the book off. Uh, I had a great conversation with Judd. I only embarrassed myself once when by misremembering uh, that he had written on a couple of issues, thinking that they were his, but they were actually Chuck Austin. So uh, if you want to hear me accidentally uh, put my foot in my mouth well you're going to enjoy that soon um but it was great talking to judd he's one of my favorite guests uh he's always so giving and uh, so generous with his time and it was really nice to be able to kind of talk about exiles uh with the original creator who and the one who kind of dreamed up these crazy versions of these characters and kind of uh getting a sense of you know what he was thinking and why he made certain decisions and you know what kind of made that book tick um you know exiles was not a sure thing when it came out um i mean it, i think it did well well, obviously it did well enough that it kept going for 100 issues, but it felt one, like one of those things that was kind of a, an interesting extension of X-Men and What If and kind of smashing those ideas together. And uh, it's a book that I've long loved. Uh, I was there when it first launched. I was actually uh, pick, I was reading the Blink miniseries that was leading up to Exiles, uh, so I was right primed for that book. And it was uh, just an immense thrill to be able to actually talk in uh, in detail uh, with Judd about it. Uh, just a few kind of editor's notes. Um, there's a few places that uh, I think the audio cuts out once or twice. And I, I don't know if I... I haven't really had the time available to kind of go back and edit it out because I wanted the episode to come out. Um, and I wanted to be able to share the audio with everyone. So I do apologize in advance for that. You can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Rate and review the show on iTunes. Subscribe to us on iTunes and also listen to us on Stitcher. We're getting really close to episode 800. Um, I think there's going to be, I think we've, we've basically been off for almost two weeks now uh, with no episodes. So I'm going to be coming back with this episode this week and then a reviews episode and then something else. So uh, getting right back into the schedule as we get closer and closer to episode 800. It's hard to believe. Uh, August 12th, we're getting in, uh, coming very close to the eighth anniversary of the show, uh, which is nothing short of crazy to me. I n- did not think eight years ago that I'd still be doing a podcast now. Um, the show was very different when it started. Um, I mean, I was still doing reviews episodes, so that's still the same, although at the time I was reading like 20 books a week. Now I'm lucky if I'm talking about like four or five books, so that's been very different. Those episodes used to be half an hour to an hour. I just don't have that kind of time anymore. At the time, I didn't have any children. I now have two. I have a six-and-a-half-year-old, and I have a beautiful little uh, almost 17-month-old uh, little girl, actually, that we just adopted. So that's actually a brand-new thing. Uh, we adopted her June 1st, so uh, she's just joined our family. So I have two kids, uh, very different from when I first started the podcast, don't have the same level of time and commitment, that I guess, that I need to have. Um, but when I first started, I wasn't doing creator interviews. I did not even... It was, you know, not even my, my wildest dreams that I ever think I'd be talking with people like Scott Lobdell or Chris Claremont or Jed Winnick uh, or Roger Stern. That was so far beyond the pale that it's uh, still incredible to me that I've been able to talk with these amazing creators. Anyways, enough of my prattling on. You're here to listen to Jed Winnick. Let's jump right in to another conversation with Jed Winnick, this time doing a creator commentary on Exiles. Enjoy. Jed, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. Who are you today? I'm excellent. 
Excellent, sir. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. I believe this is number five. Uh, we can tick off. So now, uh, if we were if we were uh, learning how to, to count with uh, you know stacks and numbers, we'd have five done now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I believe on SNL they have the have the uh, like the, the number five host five time host. That's thing. right. Yes, the five timer club. Yeah, yeah I, I get a jacket. Right. <laughs> it's in the mail. There you go. Excellent. I mean, I'm in Canada, so it'll never arrive. But you know, it's in the mail. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> so um, last time we had chatted, I, I kind of threw out the idea that I'd love to have you back on to kind of go through a little bit of your Exiles run. We've talked here and there about it. We've actually spent more time looking at your DC work. So um, I would love the opportunity to talk to you about Exiles. Uh, for me, it was hugely important. Um, you know, it came out, I believe, in 2001, I think I'm saying. Um, and so I would have been like 18 years right, yeah. I was 18 years yeah. old, really like getting into X-Men uh, in the, a couple years before that. And there's just something about all the alternate realities. It was kind of a, again, a Sliders meets Quantum Leap meets X-Men kind of vibe to it that I really glommed onto and really enjoyed. And I followed that book, you know, until it ended with issue 100. Now, obviously, you didn't write all of that, but I'm curious to go back to the genesis of it. And I think we've kind of poked around about this before. But how did you end up writing Exiles and actually launching a book of your own so early in your comic writing career? Uh, that was entirely Marvel coming to me. I mean, they they, they came to me with the project. Um, as I remember, um, uh, I had just uh, I had begun uh, writing Green Lantern mm-hmm. for uh, for DC Comics, and this was in the era where one could comfortably hop back and forth between companies. Still, mm-hmm. um, I don't. I actually don't know where we're sitting right now as far as how that goes. Uh, and this was <laughs> in response to that DC. DC Comics offered me a um, exclusive contract, so then I couldn't write for for, for Marvel anymore. <laughs> but that was, that was before this. Uh, apparently, I caught their attention. Uh, they asked me to come and actually write a few uh, uh, a few fill in things. Actually, I was I was finishing up uh, a Blink miniseries mm-hmm. uh, with an eye on doing just this, and they came to me and pitched me the idea of the series that they wanted to do um, a group of alternate reality. Uh, X Men, uh, and they they gave me this. Uh, basically, it was a it was uh, it was a clip. Well, not a clip art, but it was a um, uh, uh, not even a splash page collection. It was a special collection called Millennial 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 Visions. Millennial Visions, yeah. Yeah, and in it they had uh, splash pages of you know imaginary teams. They told artists to like, go make up your own team. It's like, all right. So, what if the, what if all the X Men were robots from another dimension? What would they look like? You know. And then they said, so go ahead and pick and choose any team members you want from here. I now know they did that because it's a rights issue. Hmm. So, so by, by me picking like you know any kind of alternate reality uh, characters which were created by somebody else within Marvel, um, I, you know they already own it or whatnot. I think out of that, I only picked uh, Nocturne. Hmm. was in there and I think it was just simply like I like the look and sound of her like oh no Nightcrawler's daughter that's kind of fun like that'll be interesting I'll do that um, and the rest were uh, they had asked me to make Blink the head of the team um, and then after that I said well I want to keep Morph because Morph is really funny in Age of Apocalypse but I think I'll make him a different Morph like he, did, he actually doesn't know Blink which would be kind of interesting mm-hmm. and then the rest I just made up you know it's like <laughs> Like, yeah, it's like, well, what if I do Thunderbird, who's like one of the great tragedies from the X-Men. He like, died so soon and kind of needlessly um, mashed it in it. That's, I, I think, 
I think the, the biggest thing is just cooking up Thunderbird. Hmm. Um, the idea of taking him, like, okay, what if he was one of the, you know, four horsemen of the apocalypse from Apocalypse? And he was, he was like, war. It's like, ah, oh, now we're cooking. This is kind of interesting. We're just, yeah, just mash this crap up. And <laughs> um, I added in Mimic, who was one of my favorite conceptual characters as a teenage teenage boy. I had one of these I had one of these collections uh, that it's one of these garbage collections back in the day where it's just it just listed all the all the X-Men comics. Like it had the cover, it gave a brief synopsis, and that was about it. And it was just it was a piece of junk, but I worshiped it. And I think it actually ran out, meaning like it, it finished off just around when Burn and Claremont Oh really? Uh were were taking over and um like as far as like the, the, the books that listed but in there it listed Mimic and described the character and I thought it was awesome and you know this is before the internet so I had to go <laughs> kind of dig around and find out about like who it was and I, I liked the idea that there was this kind of troubled character who could take on you know he could he could do, do that he could mimic other characters powers and he took on all the original X-Men's powers so I made him one of the cornerstones of, of the Exiles book because I just like again I was writing this character when I was like 13 or 14 years old mm-hmm. I made up my own comic around him in the X-Men uh, so it's funny because I always refer to superhero comics as fan fiction <laughs> you don't get more on the nose than this I actually you know here's here's something I loved when I was a 14 like 13 14 years old no lie it's like yeah now I'm going to put him in a book you know, <laughs> make him a real thing um and, and that was kind of it. They kind of like let me have carte blanche, and I, I think I came back to them with the idea of like, yeah, what if, um, what if we do it like a combination of that, like a, like a combination of what if and quantum leap and sliders that they go from one reality to another reality, and you know, throwing in like, yeah, maybe we'll even do it that, you know, they go through storylines that we know, and then fix these storylines. So everyone liked the idea because it was a, it was kind of an easy layup. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, there's a lot of stories to mess with and. You know, it's like all right, and then we're just off the races. And as a as a new writer, it was um, really a dream job because all I simply did for half of them was take my favorite storylines from when I was a kid or that I grew up with, and I put this team in the middle of them, and I screwed around with the story just big time. Mm. You know, one of the one of the earliest ones we did was you know, Death of Phoenix. So you know, come on. You know, <laughs> it's, it's like, and like and yeah, and even flat out ripping off one of the what if books, which is like, what if Phoenix had survived? Hmm. Um, so that was the idea. You know, what, what did she do? She killed all the X Men. Um, so that's what it was sort of born out of. You hmm. know, they they like gave me the simple idea. I was all full of piss and vinegar and big <laughs> ideas, uh, and and at the same time, not many ideas. So again, it was really a bonus that I was allowed to steal from some of the best plot lines and, you know, really learn my chops mm-hmm. and uh, make up characters rather than having to, you know, necessarily, you know, stand on the shoulder of giants and have to come in. Like what I was doing over in Green Lantern could be very challenging at times because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a, you know, I'm writing one of the big books and there's only so far you can go and so much you can do. With, with Exiles, I could do anything. 
so that was a blast. I'm going to jump forward kind of in the timeline of Exiles for a moment to I think after sure. the second year, but it's interesting because the book kind of exists in its own ecosystem, and then it does briefly have a crossover with the mainline Marvel Universe that obviously would have been a, you know, I, I would imagine a testament to how well the, either the book was going or maybe it needed the sales boost. I don't know either either or, really, but what was it, how did it feel to you to be able to bring your, you know, ragtag group and actually have them interface with the regular Marvel Universe? I didn't do that. Did you not do that? Oh my god! Was no, that the issues I, you didn't do? I, no, that was. I, I think. I think either that might have been. Uh, that might have been a fill-in. I swear, the fill-in might have been. Ah, um, uh, no, it wasn't when actually. Didn't Armand actually take over the book for a little while? That was much, was much. That was like. I know it's much, much later. Yeah, he did so eventually. This was. Um, it wasn't Lobdell. It was. Um, I'm blanking. Was on it? Was it Chuck Austin? Took over. It was Chuck Austin. Yeah, I think Chuck Austin might have. Uh, um, they might have had him jump in there. I think I was maybe running a smidge late, mm. and I might have already announced that I was going to be leaving. Okay. And uh, so Chuck jumped in and did like three or four issues, um, and uh, then I then I think I did my last four issues. Okay. Um, given my druthers, you know, had it been up to me, I never would have had them cross over with the regular universe. Mm. Um, at least not yet. I mean, I had, I had bigger plans for the book that, of course, I never got to do, hmm. uh, which is, you know, no fault of my own. Um, I, I left the book. So, uh, you know, I mean, what I was planning on doing, and for anyone who read the book, is that is that usually the way it worked was we'd have uh, the team would basically go on a mission for two or three issues. Mm-hmm. Um, never more than three, always two, a couple standalones here and there. Um, my plan for the next year was I was going to pop them into some place for like six issues or even a year and really try to mess with it and challenge myself uh, but, but but you know but I was dumb enough to leave the book so that was that um, <laughs> but uh, yeah so that was that was not me but it's okay to, to again but it was in the mix of it and towards the end there so I could see how the confusion came in yeah you know, I, I forgot that like I knew that Chuck was doing the X-Men issues I just for some reason in my mind thought you were still doing the Exiles issues at the time but so that is an interesting kind of hiccup in your run that you know you you know someone else kind of does something while you're while you're gone what is that like in a book that you created that you started when someone else does do a fill-in I mean again regardless of what why it may have happened I'm just curious what that feels like when it's again your kind of baby that you started and then someone kind of jumps in while you're not done yet well uh at that time, and even, well, okay, let's talk globally. Globally, I, I don't know why. I've always pretty much, pretty much, I'm not, you know, I'm not made of stone, but I've pretty much have had a, a very, we'll call it a generous attitude uh, when it comes to superhero comics in general. That uh, when I leave a title, um, you know, just like when I came into a title, like I, I, I myself have come to, I, I tend to come into a title and then I, I tend to break things. You know, <laughs> I tend to mix it up. Um, I tend to take things that the writer prior to me may have been working with and like, you know, phase a character out, kill a character off, change things up in a big way. Um, but um, I've always done that. And, and by the same token, I don't, I don't think there's a, that there should be an issue with that. I think, I mean, that's the problem with, uh, in general, with superhero comics is that looking at it as um, as a straight line mm-hmm. or a constant. Uh, they're, you know, they're very again, like they're all fan fiction. They're all, they're all, you know, 
we are writing characters created by, I want to say men and women, but it's almost exclusively men uh, at this point with a few women who've created characters along the years. Um, but, you know, all, all, the, all the big major characters that everyone is doing, you know, it's all dudes, it's all white dudes, but it's a whole other conversation. Um, so all these people come before us, you know, most of them aren't with us anymore. They're, they're, they're literally long dead. Hmm. You know, or recently dead. These are these are people who are long gone, and we're still writing the stories of the characters they created. This is this is not a common occurrence when it comes to storytelling. In that sense, like you know, it's the only it's it's one of the few mediums that does this, hmm. where the, the characters go on when the storytellers are long gone. It doesn't happen in prose. You know, it. I mean, it, it, in, in a sense, you can say it happens in motion pictures, but then again, they, they're not making. They're not making a new motion picture every month. Television shows eventually go off the air because the actors get too old, and it's not like they change them over. It's it's the only medium that does this. You know, Batman's been about you know twenty nine to thirty two years old for about eighty years. <laughs> you know, very little has changed in the grand scheme of things. Even though the storytelling and how he's portrayed has changed in in big ways, but at the same time, not so. To make it make a longer story and a longer answer longer. No, I've never really had a problem with that. You know, when they want to, you know, I, I don't I don't get precious about it. You know, I've told my story in this amount of time. And you know what? It's always going to be there, especially nowadays. Everything's collected. Everything's available electronically in print. Mm-hmm. It's there. It's not like they've taken all my issues there and they've burned it. I think, <laughs> I think fans and readers, we'll call them readers, not fans, uh, you know, readers, the folks who enjoy the superhero comics would probably do better to keep that in mind that you know the whole idea of retcon the whole idea of that they've, they've destroyed all the stories that I loved they don't count anymore it's like you gotta you really really have to remember that these are stories and the stories still exist they're still there mm-hmm. you know and it, and it just it just because yeah just because you didn't like this particular turn with Hal Jordan just because you didn't like this particular turn of the X-Men doesn't mean those stories don't exist anymore because you know you got it, you gotta really own up to the fact that this isn't real, okay? <laughs> These are stories, you know, and the stories that were made 25, 30, 40 years ago. No, they're not the same now. And by the way, those characters are—they should be old people by now, and they're not. So <laughs> it's weird. You can accept the fact that a man can fly, but the idea that suddenly you know Superman and Lois Lane are going to get married, or you know, it's like you know the world's going to end, or. You know, or is he being re, or a character's being reinterpreted in a different way than what you remember. That's now, now, now he or she are a person of color. You know, um, whereas when they were created, you know, forty years ago, as a minor character in Thor. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like when I was a kid, and he was in Thor, he he was a white man. Now this idea that that he's of, of Latinx descent is just absurd. And ruins my childhood. Like, dude, just you, you need to just sit down. You'll be fine. <laughs> you know. Um, so, very big answer to. Nah, I'm okay. Everyone can change it up. It's okay. fine. That's what they're there for. It's that kind of medium. It, it's so obviously your your attitude towards that is incredibly healthy. Um, do you think that is a prevalent thought amongst creators? I mean, just as a conjecture, like, or do you think some people do get maybe sometimes a little too precious with their own work? But understandably so. It's obviously something they spend a lot of time on. But how do you think you know some people handle you know their own work being reckoned, etc.? And, and do you think they have as healthy an attitude as yours? Um, you would have to ask them. 
and I would, I would, I would also, I would also probably. Well, I think, I think the very fine point that you uh, you just made there. It's, it's, it's not their own work. That's the whole thing. It's, it's not, it's not your own work. You told these stories. You told these stories that these characters have belonged to somebody else. Hmm. So you can, you can only get so precious about it. You can only gripe so much. It's like you know. I mean, the real gripe are people who you know have written you know stories and whatnot, and and through some mistake of management or something, you know, find out like, yeah, you don't own your characters. Like what? It's like, yeah, you don't own them. They own the company. You lost the IP. Like what? Well, then then, then someone has a right to go bananas, hmm. you know, um, you know, or or taken off work that they they belong to, but by some hook or crook, they, it's not theirs anymore. Um, or, you know, well, a lot of times it happens to dead people. There's a lot of authors who tucked novels and books into drawers and said, like, yeah, that one's never going to see the light of day. <laughs> and, you know, and then their children or great-grandchildren, you know, decide, like, we're going to publish that for the money. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's, like, hey, it's like, there's a reason why they didn't publish it when they were alive. It wasn't because they were, you know, it wasn't because they were shy. <laughs> it's because they, they didn't feel it was, it was, it was worthy. Um, but, again, I... And I don't mean to be critical. People, I mean, everyone has a right to be pissed, um, and it's going to happen. You're going to, but but these stories don't belong. To, I mean, it's not the stories. The stories belong to everybody. The stories you write have your name on them, and you've written them, and they'll always be synonymous with you. But you know, the, whoever takes over that that set of characters after you, you know, that's theirs to mess with. And by the way, in 25 years from now, someone else is going to mess with a lot. They have to mess with it. Mm-hmm. They have to. I mean, they, they, they just. They're really not given. You're really not given much choice uh, because the characters can only grow and change so much. And the real art of it, and I've said this a million times, is trying to within that little small piece of real estate. You know, the only you know storytelling is supposed to be A to Z, all alphabet. Well, with superhero comics that are, that belong to other people, you can kind of go from A to C. You know. <laughs> You can't change them that much. They can't grow old or get married or kill anybody or do this or do that. So that's the art. You have to find these original stories within, you know, A, B to C. Uh, and when you do, it's great. So in that, sometimes, oh boy, you know, big crazy things might have to happen, which fit the parameters and your bosses let you do. Mm-hmm. But it means that you might have to, you know, make big changes, you know. You know, bring sidekicks back from the dead, which had no business being, you know, yeah. coming back in the first place. <laughs> Terrible things like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it was such, such an For interesting. Those playing at home, I am referencing Jason Todd and the fact that I brought him back from the dead. Absolutely. Anyone, it's not catching my joke. That's what I'm talking about. It, it's, fun, it's, it's funny because in that period when you brought Jason Todd back, you also had uh, Bucky coming back, you know, around the same time. And it's like those were the, the two that everyone thought was those can't come back. And then both of them were came back right. pretty, pretty well. And now those characters are still being used. So obviously it worked. Yeah. No, I, I'd say Ed Brubaker and I did a fine job. Uh, but <laughs> but I, th- I think that all comes back to it. You know, it's like as long as it's not a stunt, as long as you're like you're doing something, mm. then it's good. That's know? true. Um, Danny O'Neill rest his soul and actually said if we were to if we were to bring back Jason Todd it would be a really sleazy thing to do mm. what he meant and actually I, I got a chance to ask him about that during an interview um, they interviewed the two of us together about just that um, and I, I began with that it's like I'm kind of nervous to talk to you about because this quote he goes no 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 I didn't mean you or even like the <laughs> idea of you he said he goes I meant us what I was trying to say was like we killed off Jason Todd and it had to really matter it had to really count if after a year 
we brought him back, that would be a really sleazy stunt. That's what I was talking about. Hmm. And like, oh, thank God. It's like, I was so worried. He's like, no, Marquise, no. I, I said, I like the Red Hood story. <laughs> I think it's, I, he said, I think it still fulfills everything. I think it's like, you know, it's really, you know, it's, I think you're making Batman miserable. That's the point of it. Um, so that was quite complimentary. Absolutely. Well, as you said, it's, it still mattered. Like, it's not like what yeah. you did invalidated what came before. It respected it and then used it to tell a story. Right. That was my hope, yes. So I'll get back to Exiles for a second. <laughs> you bet. All right. So one thing that's always struck me about the first two issues is that it feels just like a pilot for a television show, a really well-crafted pilot, because you put all these pieces together. You have a little bit of mystery of who the time broker is. You you know, put these people together who have no business being together. Um, you get some actually pretty like kind of horrific, you know, this is what's going to happen to your lives if you go back to them kind of um, kind of moment, which is pretty crazy. And then you have a great cliffhanger to that first issue because it kind of subverts expectations of what these characters have in a way that it's telling the reader, whatever you think you know, you don't know it. And it's very different than that. And now we have an evil Xavier that we have to deal with. So, I mean, just that one issue alone, and then the second half, it kind of nicely kind of sums up that there's real stakes, people can die, and you're going to have new characters coming in and out. So was that very important to you from the beginning to kind of have that mission statement? that these are all the play, the pieces and now we can just play within this? Yeah. Um, that is very, very, very astute because that is pretty much literally what I was going for. <laughs> I think at the time I was really in uh, this zone of aping the work of Josh Sweet. Hmm. Um, and also I, I had it in my head for a long time that if I ever got a TV show I was going to try to kill off the main character in the pilot. <laughs> like I had this, I had, th- I had this stunt idea in my head uh, that you should hire the biggest name actor you possibly get a hold of, the biggest name you possibly can get, and then kill them off in the pilot, just to knock everyone right on their asses. Um, I found out later that when they did Lost, mm-hmm. um, they tried to do exactly that. They were actually going. They, they, they were going after Michael Keaton to uh, play sort of what would be the, the uh, for those playing at home if you remember Lost, uh, to play the role of Jack, who was the doctor, or a character of that ilk. It would be like, it, it was going to seem on every way, shape, or form to be Michael Keaton's show. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they were going to kill him off the pilot. And, um, you know, when I heard that, I was like, oh, I had, that was my idea, and they still haven't done it. Um <laughs> But, uh, okay, spoiler coming up for the series Watchmen. If you've not seen HBO's Watchmen, mm-hmm. turn off the podcast now and then turn it, like, jump ahead at least, let's say, two minutes. Um, <laughs> ready? And stop now. So finally, I think Damon Lindenoff finally got to do it in, when he did it in Watchmen. Mm-hmm. That uh, Don Johnson, uh, you know, huge damn, big deal, you know, dies in the pilot of the show, which, like, just, like knocked me on my ass. Like, oh, good, there, they finally did it. So with that in mind, um, I, 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 I took a character that I thought was going to be really interesting, which was, you know, Mag, he is, he is um, you know, Magneto's son, grown son. We kind of like him. He's kind of compelling right away, you know, and mm-hmm. I made sure he had plenty of time there. He dies <laughs> in, the second, in, the, in the second issue. And it's like, like, yeah, I like them apples. And then someone else shows up. It's like, so these are the rules. And then I made a rule for myself, like, Okay, don't get too attached to anybody. You know, like we're gonna have to. Everybody's gonna have to be killed off at some point, or, or you know, or or like like go away at some point. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Did Did you ever feel that you? My, my editors were not. Oh, sorry. I think we we uh, we lost each other for a second. Um, did you did you ever feel as the success of the book kind of went on that did you ever feel handcuffed that maybe you couldn't get rid of people as easily as maybe you had originally intended? Um, I don't know. I mean, I mean, yes and no. I think uh, no one told me I couldn't do it. Like at one point, I told him like, "Yeah, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get rid of blank." It's like forever, like, 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 no, you can't. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm gonna let's lose her for a couple of issues just to knock everyone on the butts. It's like, okay, that's cool. Yeah, let's do that. Um, and um, you know, I, 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 I had my, uh, I had my favorites that I knew like I really didn't want to get rid of. Like, you know, I really don't want to get rid of Mimic. I really enjoy him, but I know at some point, like, he might, he might have to go. I don't know. Um, just, just sort of keep it honest. But more important than that. As long as it made a good story, hmm. you know that was what it was what it was all about. Like none of them just disappeared for the sake of disappearing. It was all to serve the characters, serve the plot in some way, serve the story, make it look a little more interesting. And a new writer, and probably for good or for bad. Um, I didn't have a lot of uh, bad habits yet, um, and uh, I, I, I was full of ideas. So at that point, a lot of stuff was working. And in this book, again, it was a really good book to start off on. In terms of, uh, as you said, kind of picking your kind of greatest hits in your head of, you know, this idea of fan fiction, kind of picking those types of realities and kind of jumping the teams into them. So as you said, you immediately kind of jump into, you know, the trial of the Phoenix. But then right after that, you go into something that's, you know, a Hulk story, which maybe isn't as specific a storyline. Were you kind of thinking in your head? Uh, very early on that I can't just have this be X, you know, X-Men related realities like I need to be able to branch out to other things even though obviously in the Hulk one you have Wolverine still in it but where's that a conscious <laughs> effort to you know to start kind of moving away from just being as X focused right from the beginning maybe maybe I'm laughing because I think I think the first I don't know at least five or six issues maybe longer had Wolverine in it <laughs> actually like, yeah I, I hadn't I, thought of that I, but yeah I <laughs> oh I know I had a lot of Wolverine you know, and uh, and my editors had actually said like, yeah, Wolverine. It's like you've got like another story arc of Wolverine. And I'm like, yeah, why not, man? You know, again, like young writer, not giving a crap, uh, not not even noticing. Like, yeah, it's true. Yeah, I got a lot of Wolverine there. All right, all right, I want a Wolverine in there again. Uh, I said, but part of it's like sort of fun. I mean, it wound up going from X Men to Alpha Full of Flight. So, <laughs> what are you gonna do? <laughs> I picked my two favorite books. That's all that was. I mean, that that's you know, you could try and figure out the whys and what's around it, but. All in all, it was was I was just picking my favorite books. It started with X Men, my favorite book, and then to Alpha Flight, my other favorite book, and uh, the, and and my favorite character, Hulk. That's all these. That's all the rhyme and reason behind any of this. Uh, I was just doing, you know, the stuff I wanted to do, and uh, the Hulk story. Um, I was just I was just ripping off the. Uh, I was you know, you can say ripping off or borrowing from. Uh, yeah, at one point John Byrne did that story where. Uh, Hulk and Bruce Banner are separated. Um, he uh, he did that in his run, and I was a huge John Byrne fan, so I've read everything he's done. And uh, so I was taking that, taking that as a compelling idea, uh, you know, uh, like oh, okay, I'll separate them too, and we'll see what I, you know how that goes from there. And also excused my way around that I had Thunder, Thunderbird actually able to beat up Hulk, mm-hmm. uh, which you know 
initially my editor's like, well, he can't beat up Hulk. He's like, no, no, Hulk's split in half, so he's half as strong. Like, okay, as long as you mention that, that. Like, I'll try to remember to do that. If not, so what? Don't worry about it. Yeah, I'm with you. Doesn't make a lot of sense, but whatever. You know, I know <laughs> no one is stronger than Hulk, but it's exiles. We do whatever we want. Come on. <laughs> So it, it, as you develop, and as you said, like you had Thunderbird, you had a, a big focus in Thunderbird in that storyline with him and another version of himself, and so the, them talking to each other, kind of the idea of him trying to d- discover his humanity. How early on, as you're writing this, are you sure that you're going to kill him off, like, or so not kill him off? You're going to, you know, have him be discarded or left behind, like, because it, it really works well. But you have it works well because you have such great focus on him leading up to those issues where he then is written out. So how early on did you know, yes, Thunderbird's going to be the next one to go? I think, I think the, 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 the germ of that, of that was um, probably, I thought, you know, one that he, you know, he's beginning a romance. Um, he, you know, which is in the back of my mind that I had actually introduced the idea they could beat the Hulk. And then, you know, I had this kick-ass storyline idea involving the Skrulls and Galactus, and I was trying to figure out, how do you kill Galactus? It's like, well, what if Thunderbird just, you know, that's what sort of kicked, like, that's what was born out of. Like, if I bring Galactus in, they should beat Galactus. Like, and how does one actually beat Galactus? And it's like, well, someone's got to die. And who could do that? And like, you know, that's, that's how it happened. Mm. And, uh, and I think I saw that coming enough and that, again, I had the wherewithal back then and I was lucky enough that the characters I was pulling from that I developed them long enough that it didn't feel cheap, you know. And, and also, I was just getting lucky. In a lot of cases, I was. I was just getting lucky, you know. It's like um, things fell, fell together in the right place. And also, I don't want to discount the terrific artists I was working with mm. um, who really helped, you know, both – both Mike McCone and, and Jim Calafiore really, really were f- who had to draw a lot. And what I mean is, like, you know, a lot of characters. And, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and, and by the way, difficult characters to draw. They were kind of complicated looking and costume and whatnot. And we had to go to different settings. Mm. And we, you know, there was, a lot, there was a lot of crap going on. I mean, the fun of it was when I introduced characters, like, yeah. So you can do Spider-Man, just draw him any way you want as long as he looks like Spider-Man. Like, okay, cool. None of that webbing stuff in the costume. <laughs> That's a pain in the butt to draw. We're just going to keep the costume really flat and two-toned. Okay, whatever you want, man. It's fine. Um, but they also got to, you know, I, I think they, they really delivered a lot of the emotional goods as well. And I think, you know, particularly, like, Morph became a terrific character because of Macomb. Because mm. uh, he could really, I had him shape-shift into goofy things, and, and Mike really delivered that and created a blueprint for Jim who could also deliver that and suddenly it's like yeah, yeah he's kind of funny like this it's like awesome and when you have a funny guy you know you, you immediately like well I think he's a crying on the inside clown right and that makes him into something interesting and different and so it's it is it is really you know you're working with um, your collaborators and they provided a whole lot to make it really work mm-hmm in the, in that first kind of year, so as you said, like the, the structure was so exciting at the time because it's interesting as comics were starting to become a little bit more decompressed and you're starting to have longer storylines. You come out of the gate with you know a, a two-parter, a two-parter, 
a two-parter, a, you know, a, a, a one-shot, and then you have a three-parter, which feels like, again, you've earned it. Like, it feels like a big epic, even though it's only three issues, because you've established having these shorter, you know, really tightly wound stories. But your first kind of uh, solo issue is not just a solo issue, but it's part of the Nuff Said kind of quote-unquote stunt or, you know, kind of gimmick that was happening. How did you approach doing that? Not only are you, you know, slowing things down for one issue, but you're not going to use any words. Oh, that one. Yeah. Oh, that was, uh, that was a fun challenge. Well, that was, uh, that was, uh, um, uh, across the entire line. Yeah. Um, everybody, I mean, they gave everyone a heads up. <laughs> Just that, like, hey, coming up, you gotta do a standalone where you don't use, uh, any words. Or it can be part of, you know, your main story, but you can't use any words. Like, oh, no, I'll be a standalone. Um, and, uh, did Mike, Mike drew that one. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I was trying to think of Mike or, or Jim do that one uh, again in that case you know that's that falls heavily on the shoulders of the artists like okay we're gonna you know we're gonna do a lot of stuff here and um, you know and that's where I just got you know and it's it's. It, I mean the story came up with in, in a way a bit of a cop out um, like it's gonna be you know it's gonna be a dream issue where we, we go inside everyone's heads we're gonna learn a little bit about them at the same time and we have to tell it through you know through visuals um I mean, I'm I'm lucky that uh, you know I'm a cartoonist, mm. and uh, you know I, I think that way anyway. I, mean, I think I think in words and pictures anyway. So uh, realizing why well, we can't talk, and also having spent plenty of time uh, doing making jokes, doing work where like you know we don't say a thing, we're going to tell a lot. Um, you know, some of the best. Uh, you know, some of the. I mean, <laughs> there there was a there was a feeling going around. Marvel when doing this like well if you need any help and you talk about anyone about it or, you know it's like no no I'm fine you know it's like <laughs> you know, I have a well it's like and part of it I think is because I had an, an animation background mm. and just you know telling a story without words it's not that it's it's just a different muscle you just have to go ahead and do it you know it's like yeah you do it and some of the best ones are you know um, so in that case it was it was a fun exercise uh, and also the pleasure of being like uh, an up you know, like a new writer. Mm. It's like, okay, yeah, I haven't done that before. You know, if you ask me to do three of those, like, forget it, I'm going to be doomed. I don't know. You know, but, but one was enough. <laughs> how, how detailed, w- when you did this, uh, was your script from Mike? Because you don't have any reliance on your, on your, audio, on your you know, on your words. Like, it's all, as you said, heavily dependent on the visuals that are brought out. So how detailed were you getting in the script to kind of make sure it was still being able to bring out the thoughts that you had in your head? Uh, very detailed. But I think they even, I think they didn't. They even. I think they published it in the issue somewhere. Script. Yeah. Yeah, they published portions of the script in there just to like, show people that people weren't doing it on the cheap or anything. Um, and I, <laughs> I think I think I remember they had actually to tell the writers that because you can. Uh, <laughs> I forgot this until this moment. You, there is a there is a thing being paid for plot, not dialogue. Mm. That you can actually write up a comic that has no dialogue in it, but just the plot, meaning literally what what happens physically in each panel, and someone else can be writing the dialogue and get paid for that. I think they had to let everyone know, like, despite the fact you're not doing dialogue this month, you will be paid for it. It's like, <laughs> thank you, because um, you know, so because suddenly telling everyone, like, yeah, you get half the paycheck this month just because that's how we're doing the books. Um, so I. I I do, I do kind of remember that. I was like, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, whatever. I didn't. It was one of these things. Like, I didn't even know that that was a thing. Um, but that, that was that was called Marvel script back in the day. Because mm. a lot of 
early early on, I think it was because because Stan Lee would do exactly that. He would write up. Uh, he would he would pitch the the story to a number of his artists, uh, and they would they would draw it, and then he would add the dialogue later, which seems insane because it is insane, just crazy. I don't know how you make stories like that, but they did good ones too, which is crazy. Yeah. But um, in that case, yeah, I think I uh, I. I I just gave a very, very detailed script and would say things like this is what's going on in his or her head just so you can sort of carry that out, just so mm-hmm. you can see their emotion. you got to like really, you know, sell this in the, in the expressions, you know, because we're not, we're not going to, we're not going to hear them say it, so you got to see it on their faces. So it required really good acting. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting that, you know, as you said, you kind of made it the, the standalone, but in, you know, in the course of your run, it becomes such an important issue because, again, you have, it's surprising how much romance happens without any words at all, um, which I guess is kind of right. like in real life sometimes. Uh, but, uh-huh. that, you know, uh-huh. you, one of the most longstanding relationships in the book starts here with, uh, with Blink and Mimic actually, you know, kind of having a bit of a, an embrace, but then you also have a much more kind of passionate relationship start between uh, uh, Thunderbird and Nocturne. Again, what was going through your head in terms of like, were you always thinking, how would I pair off some of these characters or how would I make this work? And again, if at this point you're already thinking I'm going to get rid of Thunderbird, was it kind of trying to make sure that we kind of felt it more? Probably. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think um, just that if, they, if we're all friends and teammates, um, you know, it's it's one thing, but I also I also saw the team as being a, a bit different because they were, you know, they're they're trapped on this 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 this, this moving desert island that was their lives, hmm. uh, you know, and I think it created. It, it, I mean, the way I saw it is that this de- they're separated from, you know, people that they know and love and the normality that is their lives, even though that they're superheroes and their lives are crazy. Um, they've been pulled from that, and they're, you know, and each of them had their own particular story. You know, with with Nocturne, she's got a, you know, she's got a very happy existence as, you know, a member, a second generation member of the X Men, which is like, you know, a big happy family at this point. And Mimic, in his world, he's he's Captain America. He's one of the greatest superheroes who ever lived. You know, he's he's the leader of the Avengers. You know, he's he's a big deal. And now. With all that taken away from him, he's actually he feels diminished. Um, and again, a lot of this crap just fell my, it's just 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 fell to me. I got a chance to make it up, and I just I think it, because I was coming to it so fresh, mm. I had a lot of these like really, in my opinion, like these really nice ideas. They were they were they're a lot of fun. You could build on that. You know, that's what I was doing. So I, I was just you know again you know, Nocturne is built upon. You know, at that point, you know, forty years of great X Men stories, and Mimic is built upon the idea of Steve Rogers and Captain America mixed in with the X Men, like you know, standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, taking all the good stuff that I liked as a kid and mashing it in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and with that, you know, it makes for really just it makes for interesting stories, stories that feel familiar in so many ways, but get to be completely new in other ways. When you do do your three-part kind of epic where you do lose Thunderbird, I mean, what I, what I loved about it, first of all, is that you immediately establish a time jump from the last time we saw them, which was a nice kind of uh, conceit. And then you quickly burn through, like, just some gag panels, but, like, of six different realities. Boom, boom, boom. Like, how much fun was it to come, come up with, you know, quick hits that we're not going to explore, but in theory you could if it's at some point, and you're just kind of going through kind of a notebook? Or, like, how, do you, how are you coming up with all these ideas where you are just burning off you know, panel after panel of this is this reality, this is that reality, and just having visual gags. It was a blast, and I think it was also 
um, it was at that uh, fun point of creation that um, finally getting an opportunity to tell stories like this, which I hadn't done. Uh, you know, basically, my you know, it's, to this point in my life, I'd not really had an opportunity to, you know, capital W write, uh, not like this. Um, and, uh, you know, so the, the well was full uh, and, and discovering things like, oh, you know, I can like I can break up this little formula that I've created for myself. What if I just jump ahead? What if I jump ahead? What if I mean, I think I'd learn this later. Um, I don't think I even realized this at the time. Like, you know, it's, there's a William Goldman, uh, those playing at home. Screenwriter William Goldman, who wrote such small pictures as uh, Princess Bride and uh, Bush Cassidy and Sundance Kid and All the President's Men. So he's one of the greatest writers ever in cinema. Um, one of his big pieces of advice as far as stories, like, try to get into the story as far as you possibly can. Like, don't start on day one where everyone's meeting. Try to get in there when people have known each other a long time. Try to get as far into the scene as you possibly can. You know, not when the door opens, but like when they're like halfway through dinner. Like, try to get going. Um, and with that, I just stumbled upon the idea, like, well, wouldn't it be great if we stumbled into the story and the exiles have already been captured? They're already living this miserable existence, and they've been at it for weeks, if not months. Um, yeah, and they haven't, and, like, it occurred to me, like, click, like, just, like, you know, it just sort of clicks that, oh, that means they're stuck. That means they haven't fulfilled their mission. They're stuck there. Ah, oh, it's kind of cool. All right, well, let me let me try to fill in the gaps like what happened, like the, and then just making shit up. <laughs> just, you know, I was like, here's a crazy story over here, here's a crazy story over there. Michael has some fun drawing them and like that. Like there, well, we'll have them like in suits here. That'll be fun. That'll be fun and fun. And then we do this business, um, and um, you know, and and also not even trying to catch anybody up. You know, it's like, yeah, everyone has to know where the scrolls are. You know, I'm not going to tell them. Everyone knows, right? Yeah, sure. Crap. Let's go for it. Um, I think as an older writer, I might have felt the need to explain things a bit more. Hmm. Like, you know, like, let me tell these people who the scrolls are. Like, I don't even know if I did that. I think I just jumped right in, right? I, I, I couldn't even tell you. Um, <laughs> you know, if I explained them as that they're there, maybe I did. Maybe I even did say there were like a, a, you know, this warring race of shapeshifters who, you know, took over Earth. Maybe I did do that. I don't remember. I think you I did. Do, I think I you know. did because you kind of explained kind of what made this reality different. Yeah, probably, probably. Which was kind of the crux of the of the series. I mean, ultimately, you had that in some way, whether it be a longer form or a shorter form. Like you always kind of had to do some sort of catch up as to what what's wrong with this reality. Which, to be honest, is a, a nice conceit because you have you know a MacGuffin, not a MacGuffin, but you have you know the talus that can kind of let you know what you need to know and a nice way to kind of right. get get moving, right? Yep. No, that's true. No, and like, right from the jump, like, okay. So here, Dr. Connor became a lizard, but there's a twist. When he bites people, he turns them into lizards as well. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, and so it's like, you know, so before everybody did a zombie apocalypse, I was doing a lizard apocalypse. I didn't, you know, it was, it was like kind of, ahead, kind of ahead of that. Um, but, uh, yeah, but that too was a lot of fun. Now, for the reader, I mean, you're not when you're reading it, you don't know that Nocturne and Thunderbird are together, and it's kind of a surprise. But what I thought was that was interesting is that you made it a surprise to the team as well, uh, that it was something that they kind of had between them, but they weren't really sharing with the others. That what kind of led you to kind of make that decision that within this very kind of close knit family, uh, because of all the missions they've had to do together, that there's still some privacy and still something that's secret amongst just two of them. It makes it more fun. 
you know, it makes it makes it. I mean, it means everybody's surprised. Mm-hmm. It was just it, it made it made for. Um, it also makes for quick work. Um, you know, you don't have to. You know, you, you just surprise everybody with it, and everyone's surprised. But then we have no no choice but to move on from it. Mm. Um, and uh, again, to me, it just kind of made sense. Um, and I like the idea that they, you know, they were just this unusual. Well, one would call it an unusual couple. Most because Thunderbird seems monstrous, um, and it's something that we dealt with later. Um, and in doing it, when it came up with it, I also thought about like, you know what? I'm going to come back to this later, though. Like we're gonna lose him, but we're gonna recap a little bit, mm-hmm. and, and that's when I, you know, when I, literally when I came up with the idea that they're going to be a couple, I also came up with the idea like we're gonna do a standalone where she reflects upon when they were a couple. I think, and they make a nice like standalone one shot story, mm-hmm. um, and that was just in the back of my head. When you do write that issue, where again that Thunderbird, you know, ends up being written out, um, what kind of led to the decision to kind of underscore the difficulty of, that, of the losing a loved one, but also having Nocturne then be pregnant as well? Like, what kind of led to that? And it's interesting, obviously, that Thunderbird still knows about it. So, no, you know, everyone knows that she's pregnant when Thunderbird, you know, is, is lost to them. What kind of led to that decision to kind of add that extra level? Because I could not think of anything that would be more sad than that. Hmm. Um, it is. It is like you know when you are pregnant during wartime. You know when um, when you are. You know they are. They again like they are. They are not. They're, they they have no idea when they're going home. They have absolutely no stability. They don't know what they're going into next. And what makes you more vulnerable or frightened and happy hmm. than than that? Um, I don't. I I I'm pretty sure I knew at that point. I because. I had heard stories that, you know, there, there were children who were conceived and born and survived uh, concentration camps. Uh, I mean, there's not a ton of them, <laughs> mind you, but there were, there were children who uh, were born, in, were, who were actually, like, were born in the concentration camps of the Holocaust. Uh, I think their the numbers are very, very few, um, but I've, I'd heard stories. Uh, not really uh, uh, verified stories, but Conceptually, it, the idea, uh, you know, had gotten in my head, and and along probably along with that, um, there was a lot of children who were conceived during the Blitz, uh, when, during World War II in London, uh, and in England. Uh, you know, can you imagine that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we might get blown up. The Germans might drop bombs on us. We could die at any time, but we're still having babies. Um, you know, it's it, what can you But you know, sometimes it's accidental. Sometimes accidental. Sometimes it's not. But in this case, I just, I just thought it was. Um, uh, I thought it was so exquisitely terrible. What a great story to tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I think I've always, I think I've always had that. I've always had that muscle where um, I feel very, very comfortable putting characters I'm writing through terrible experiences. Uh, I don't have. Uh, I don't want to say I don't have empathy for them because it's not because that's not what it's about because you know how, how they experience things and the way they react it's never for nothing but you know you're not supposed to be precious about your characters because you know good stories are conflict and when terrible things happen it shouldn't happen for no reason like you know it, gratuitous is a, is a is an excellent word hmm. both in you know there was a, there was a good five year run in motion pictures where we were having just disaster porn 
Hmm. uh, I I, I really enjoyed that turn of phrase because that's what it felt like. We're just blowing up a lot of buildings because we can do it with CGI now. And ignoring the fact that inside these buildings we've got thousands of people who are dying at every turn. Like, this is, you know, you can't just do this. You've made movies into a video game. There's no cost. We're not feeling it. This is a this is an epic, you know. That the the world changes on a dime when things like this happen. So with that, I'm conscious of the terrible things I put the characters through. But at the same time, um, you know, I do uh, enjoy the wrong word. That I, when I dive in, I figure out some way. Like, yeah, this is sad and wonderful and terrible, and really make the readers feel something. I think they can empathize. I think they can empathize if I create this scenario. The uh, the end of that issue where I mean again when the team ends up leaving and just the realization that you have the characters go through uh, as TJ realizes that you know he's being left behind so they're being replaced and then the the really sad last few panels of just her begging no 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 and then just being blinked away um, really kind of underscored how how devastating it was but how you made the right call by having him just be you know brain dead because if he'd been dead it would have been over whereas the fact that he's still right. alive but they can't take him with him and he's already been replaced it's it's all the more painful for the reader and for the character because he's still alive but he's just not there anymore right exactly yeah yeah and uh i i i um it, it lands right firmly into, you know, the way we've set up our, um, the tragedy of this team. You know, so you in the head. If he died, death is final, and he's gone. But they have to leave him behind, which is, which in so many ways is worse. So, you, and, you uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. It, no, no, go on, go on. Well, I'm sure just going to talk nonsense. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, like when, when you when you write out Thunderbird and you know what, what the impact it has on TJ, and you said that you kind of had the idea that you were going to have a reflecting story where you do have Nocturne kind of looking back on the relationship, which is still one of my favorite kind of done in one issues because uh, it builds so beautifully and kind of builds in these things that you didn't know was there, but it all makes sense with what you read before. Um, so it's, it's beautifully told, but again, epically sad. At what? How early did you know it's going to lead to a miscarriage as well? Because that obviously is a very big emotional moment for the character and something that doesn't happen a lot in comics. So I'm just curious, you know, how early you knew that part was going to be part of the you know main plot there. Um, I pretty much decided from the time I from the a moment or two after I, I thought, okay, well she's going to be pregnant. It's like okay, well either. TJ goes away, you know, either we lose her, you know, and she, she gets to go home with the baby, which is like solution number one, is that we're dealing with the fact that she's pregnant, which, by the way, bit of a drag. <laughs> <laughs> Unless I decide, I mean, I had all these, you know, there was all these options in my head. Do we jump ahead and she's like way pregnant and having the baby, and then they solve the thing and then she gets to go away? Are we toting around the baby for a while? Like, that's, that's kind of a problem. You know, it's like, you know, and I, I thought about it, and it wasn't making good story so much it was making a decent ending to a story, but then again, we are literally like dragging around a baby. Um, and that felt problematic in the storytelling because it would always just sideline her to protect her kid. Whatever they were doing, all she's going to be doing is like, I got to go, you guys go fix this thing and we're going to go hide with the baby. You know, like, you know, she's not going to find a sitter wherever world they went to or something. So it's just, so 
it, it quickly got in my head like yeah I think I think the greater the better story here and the uh, and the tragedy is that she's baby um, you know and you know and with that she loses this piece of John that she's carrying around with her uh, which is again really sad um, and you know and again weighs on you know Talia is one of our more ebullient characters from the beginning, and this and, and these terrible things happen to her, which takes which kind of take her down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I was eventually planning on doing. You know, dead is dead in comic books. You know, but dead is never really dead in comic books. But brain dead, it means you're definitely going to wake up. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I hadn't figured out exactly at what point. You know, because you know, I didn't know I was leaving the book, and I didn't know how long I was doing this, and it was down the road, and I hadn't hit this story yet. But I thought at some point they were going to go back. They'd wind up being back on the scroll world, and then wondering like, is this the same scroll world? And then, and then we have John. And what we're, I was probably going to do is that John was going to have a lot of his apocalypse cyber crap has been taken out of him, hmm. um, and he's and he's uh, uh, not exactly a hundred percent, kind of like post book. Hello. Oh, are you still there? Yep, lost you for a second. Okay, sorry. Um, let me just make sure that we were on. Uh, we might have lost priority for a second there, and one of my kids jumped on the Wi-Fi. Um, sorry. Okay, hopefully we can edit this out. But um, yeah, again, again, it was. It was. Uh, then we get into the conundrum of what was going to happen. You know, does John get to come along with the team again? Hmm. Does he, does he, is he stuck there forever? How does that work? And uh, for me, this always these these seem like fun problems um, to solve later, um, which uh, was one of my earliest lessons in comic books. That sometimes you don't get to keep doing your characters; you got to let them go. Mm-hmm. It is funny we're talking about this. It is funny that we began with me having this long dissertation about not caring about what happens to your characters <laughs> after they go, because I I should say the Exiles is the only book that I was in my entire 12 plus years of writing superhero comics it was the only book that I walked away from and I wasn't done hmm. um, that you know the basically what I, I, I had to leave because you know, that for those playing at home DC Comics uh, began uh, but they created this thing called an exclusive contract and Jeff Johns and I were the two first writers that they offered these exclusive contracts to and it meant just that they were promising us a certain number of time salary as it were uh, to be exclusive to DC Comics and just write for DC Comics uh, and they'd left Jeff and I do our like independent comic crap if we had any I was writing and drawing my own comic called Barry Ween and I think Jeff had a couple of things over at Image that he was still doing um but it did mean they didn't want us writing for Marvel anymore. So I had to finish up like my last story arc or two for Exiles, and then I was done. Um, but I had, again, as I said, I had, I had more fish to fry. I had more to do. Um, and I did not, for a, for a long time, read what happened next. Hmm. Um, and uh, that was a little bit like, yeah, I don't want to see how they mess with my stuff too much. But at the same time, you know, you're going to mess with stuff a lot. I mean, I found out later that they killed off pretty much everybody. <laughs> it's like, did Morph die? Yeah. It's like, Mimic, he died too? Really? Oh, wow. Jeez, okay. 
It's like, you don't die, just send them home. Jeez, okay, all right, well, whatever, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to go, I, I know we're almost at the end of our time, but uh, I just want to go back to the Nocturne and Evan song story just because, again, it has always been one of my favorite issues. It's so well-paced, so well-told. Uh, Califiori's oh, art is, is absolutely gorgeous. Like, there's a, a great sequence where you have uh, John and, and Nocturne together, and he's smiling while they're in these, you know, the, these the barbarian games or whatever the Skulls are doing, and he's smiling because he can't help it because she's carrying their baby. And it's just such a, a beautiful moment, and it's kind of interesting that where he starts the series, he gets better and better and gets happier eventually because he finds her. Yet her life gets worse and worse at the same time because she's started with this kind of idyllic life and kind of ends up with something a lot, you know, a lot more troubled. It's interesting how their paths are, you know, kind of crossing, but one of them's going up and one of them's going down, and then we lose John. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they're supposed to meet somewhere there in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> there, there was, there was, and, um, uh, it's one of these things where I just, I really do feel like I got lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, that, uh, you know, you're coming to something fresh, and they're giving you, uh, you know, it, sometimes it's, it's it, it becomes overwhelming when you have no parameters mm. to tell a story. Um, here, a terrible example on the TV show Project Runway, uh, which is a reality show, which many of you know, reality game show where people <laughs> make, uh, you know, they make dresses, and they're given assignments like, you know, you have to, you know, you have to make this evening gown, and you can wear two on a red carpet. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of folks, a lot of the designers, they do really, really well. And then when they're given the opportunity to do whatever they want, they fall on their faces. When they're given assignments, they really, really shine. When they're left to their own devices and the world is their oyster and it's a blank slate, you know, the empty canvas, the blank page, uh, with no parameters, they just, they don't know what to do. So I think as a young writer, uh, giving these parameters uh, to do a story in this way, but at the same time, given so much room, um, it really allowed me to find things and grow right away. Um, it's why I do I do think like a lot of a lot of my stuff probably doesn't hold up here and there um, for a lot of reasons. I will never point out which because it's always somebody's favorite. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you say like, oh yeah, no, I really that one I just totally flamed out. I don't know what I was thinking. So really, that's my favorite work you've ever done. It's like, uh, yeah, okay. Well, I didn't mean that. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think Exiles, in all due modesty, I think it holds up for a lot of reasons. I think conceptually, um, it has an evergreen quality. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the artists who drew the book um, were both very, very contemporary, but also. They're, they're, they're uh, folks who happen to be really classic in their approach, so it makes for good storytelling. Um, and uh, again, I was a young writer who was full of ideas, so you got like a lot of my best stuff. It was a lot of my first at-bats, you know, and a lot of times your first at-bats is, is when you, you're coming in fresh, you're coming in strong, and you, you know, uh, so I think a lot of that... Uh, you know, a lot of that worked for that reason. Mm-hmm. Did, did, when, did you get any pushback about using miscarriage in, in the book? Because it's, again, a little bit more of a, an adult topic that we don't normally see. Well, I, what the pushback was is they wanted to keep it fairly ambiguous. That uh, miscarriage wasn't the issue. They actually did not want it to be clear that, uh, um, that Nocturne terminated the pregnancy. Mm. Now, some people, I'm not going to say which, some people uh, feel that she might have terminated the pregnancy because without John and living this life, it isn't something that she could 
she could bear to take on the responsibility of doing it on her own. And, and also she didn't want to bring a child into this horrendous situation. And then other felt, others felt that, you know, faithfully she had a miscarriage. Um, I have never corrected people on either, um, you know, on either opinion. Um, and, uh, uh, and I'll leave it at that, which actually it is. <laughs> um, part of me, well, I'll put it another way. I don't think it matters. Hmm. I think if she lost the pregnancy, um, there's tragedy in that. Um, I think if she felt that she had to terminate the pregnancy, there's tragedy in that too. I think that in, in both cases, uh, she's lost this piece of John. You know, one was her choice, the other wasn't, but I think it still breaks her heart either way. Um, you know, and, and I, I think it's an interesting discussion to have too. Yeah. I think stories can be ambiguous sometimes. You I know, think I think if I, I have to, I have to admit I never I never saw the ambiguity. I just kind of assumed and I'm maybe wrong, maybe not, but it's so interesting to hear you talk about it because you're right. It's all in there that maybe she did, you know, choose to terminate it whereas I just never read it that way. I just always read it as, you know, that her sadness is more that she, you know, physically she just couldn't she couldn't keep it and that she's, you know, feels bad about it, but I I'm reading it a different way now and I I'm intrigued by it because I, I guess you're right. The ambiguity is, makes it more interesting. She actually says at one point, um, if you read later, she talks about that she lost the baby. But if you notice the way it was written, she's stuttering her way through it. Hmm. So uh, I wanted folks to think, is she lying or is it just hard to talk about? Um, and I'll kind of leave it there. There. Because <laughs> again, I think I think it's the ambiguity of it is is kind of interesting, you know. And I think I think it's 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 a worthy ambiguity. I think it's a worthy discussion. Um, and uh, and again, and, and oddly, you know, this many years later, um, it's still a discussion that you know can can be had. Um, you know, when people are in a situation such as that, when people are in a situation where maybe they should be. They shouldn't have a child. What do they do? You know, what do you do? And even if it's if it's something that that's important to you. Um, so, and again, it was it was something that maybe I was going to deal with later, specifically when John came back, um, if and when that happened. So the last question I'll ask you is that so right after that extremely heartfelt issue, you have another issue that has quite a somber ending, where you have your Kirk Connor story, um, which it felt as I read it, it almost feels like, you know, especially hearing you talk about when you bring in Mimic as kind of being your, you know, Captain America of his world, and you kind of see that he is this guy who's a bit shaken by the world he's in now, and he's perhaps never more shaken in your run. Where at the end of this issue, he's trying to convince Kirk Connors not to kill himself. Um, or sorry, not to kill himself to, to kind of blow everything up. He decides not to, but then still kills himself. And at the end, you just have Blink telling him, you know, you did everything you could. And he's like, I know that's the problem. Was it really interesting to kind of put this Captain America like character through those paces where he's kind of not giving up, but feeling like there's a hopelessness to this situation that no matter what they do, they're kind of stuck? Yeah. Yeah. I kind of um, uh, hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. I, I, I enjoyed the fact. Again, like putting putting a, putting a, a, a character's full hope through through some terrible paces, um, he keeps getting broken. I think the world that he comes from, um, he I mean he, he is he is used to adversity, he's used to the fight, uh, and, but I think he's up for it there because he knows where the goalposts are, 
and in here the rules keep changing on him, and it's it's actually he's finding his own weaknesses. He's not he's not as capable of you know just he can probably physically handle these things. He's capable of, of, of dealing with these things with with his fists and his powers, but it's weighing on him how much loss there is. That people keep dying and people keep getting hurt and they keep doing these things that help them move forward. But what the hell is that? You know, it, it, he, he, you know. I mean, I guess, I guess part of it and something I didn't think about really at the time is like it's kind of like they're stuck in a video game, um, hmm. and that probably was probably what it feels like to him. It's like they, they keep you know they keep solving these problems, which aren't really solutions. It just was moves them forward. And then they have another set of garbage they have to deal with, <laughs> um, opposed to in his world. You fight the bad guys, the bad guys go away, so, or sometimes you'll lose, but you know where you stand. You know what the rules are. But I, I, and I, I like the idea that this is a breaking point. And it really did, for me, I really thought of him as Steve Rogers. I always did. And this is, this is pre-Chris Evans, when we could all really envision who, who Steve Rogers is supposed to be. Uh, but uh, it's one of the things I always loved about Captain America. Hmm. You know, he's, he's really, you know, he's hopeful. He's hopeful and he believes in things, and he and he and he he he, he doesn't mean he's not a hero because he wants to be. He's a hero because he has to be, because uh, that's what he does, and he's willing to sacrifice. He's willing to sacrifice himself. But what happens when uh, again, like the goalposts keep moving? And uh, you know, I enjoy I enjoy just terrorizing this character that way. <laughs> <laughs> And the, the last question I'll have for you is that you you played with so many different alternate realities. Is there any any one in particular that you'd be like, I'd love to do just a story on that universe, just to see what happened to do this or what happened to make that happen? Or is there any particular one that you're like, I'd love to do more on that, just to explain that world, even if it's just for a one shot, just to kind of look at that world? Oh, you know, um, at some point, I, I um, at some point I wanted to, I, I'll be honest, I have to be really honest. As a kid, um, I really never ever liked Thor. <laughs> I always, I, I really, I just didn't. I just it never, it never clicked with me. Too many gods, weird names, the stupid way they spoke, um, and I will, I will go on record: the stupid way they still speak. <laughs> and this faux nonsense, the and thou Shakespearean crap they're doing, which they should learn the lesson. See what they did in the movies? They speak with English accents and they move on from that. That's not how they talk. It's, it's, it's terrible. No one talks that way, and you shouldn't do it. Um, I was interested in doing something really funky with Asgard. Um, I was really going to play around with I hadn't decided who was going to have the hammer yet. It was going to be something with Beta Ray Bill or something. Um, and I didn't you know, figure out exactly who it was. Uh, and definitely someone on the Exiles team was going to get to hold the hammer at some point. I was going to mess with that one. Um, I got to visit Baron Blood. Uh, one of my favorite two issues of comics ever was uh, two issues of Captain America where he fights Baron Blood, and we got to do that one. And that's what I was doing. I was visiting all my favorite, my favorite comics, uh, and I'm trying to think what was left. There was probably I got a bunch of Alpha Flight in there that I dug. I re- reintroduced Heather Hudson as Sasquatch, which mm-hmm. I thought was fun and crazy. Um, but uh, uh, probably again. Try to make Thor work for myself, which was going to be fun. Uh, probably, I was going to do one where we uh, uh, went back in time, and I'd have to explain how they could travel through time in some way. Because uh, I sort of made it a rule that we weren't going to go back that forward back in time. So it was had to be something screwy. Somehow, 
messed with something messing with World War II, Human Torch, Vision, Submariner, some of that, that nonsense. I couldn't figure it out yet, but uh, nothing specific. I'm sure there's one I'm forgetting. It's like, which, which is one that I had to do? I can't remember. Which one was it? God damn it. Uh, it's, it it's, it's, it's probably sitting there, but, uh, but Thor for sure. Because, okay. again, I, I, it was one of those things like, yeah, I hate Thor, so I wanted to go make it work. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Judd, thank you so much for spending so much of your time to uh, go uh, deep on Exiles with me. It uh, has been, you know, just such a, a treat for me because, as I said, I was such a huge fan of the book when it came out. It meant a lot to me. I really love those characters. I love what you did with Mimic, especially because he was just it was the coolest that character's ever been. Um, so, I mean, that's a testament to you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I uh, um, well, I, I appreciate that. Again, I have to I have to share credit with my artists who. Um, delivered the goods in such a way. I mean, really, really did some amazing stuff with that. Um, you know, they made them beautiful. They made them, they, they brought them to a certain level of reality. Um, so it's a team effort. It really, really is. But I love that book. I love that run. And uh, people now are going to ask, you ever come back to it? Like, I don't know. Uh, it's like, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, they asked me one time, and I absolutely had no time to do it. Um uh, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think I think maybe it isn't a book that works anymore because we've, we've screwed around with so much reality now. Mm. We've done so much time hopping since then uh, that I'm not sure it works anymore. I don't think anything can be explored anymore that way and make it feel interesting. I don't know. I don't know. But I'm glad I got to do it the first time. It's interesting, so though, because as much as it's about the ultimate realities, it's about the characters you put through it. I mean, like, you had some great ideas for, the, you know, the worlds you explored, but really what makes that book work is because of the interplay between the main characters and, and how those experiences end up shaping them. So as much as, yeah, it's, you know, it's got a f- cool, fun hook because, you know, it's an alternate version of X, it's really the fact that you you grow up with these characters and you're falling in love with them and how they interact and how they go through these these troubles, like watching Mimic doubt himself and that's what makes that work work to me. So I, th- I feel like I know what you're saying that you know the alternate realities itself is not maybe as fresh or in- interesting anymore. But for me, that was never really the best hook. The best hook was your characters. Well, thank you, thank you. And I, I guess I, I guess I'm being a little disingenuous. That uh, part of it would be would be just that you know having to you know do, do I come back you know do you know if we're to come back to do it we come back with the same crew mm-hmm. or you kind of you kind of can't you gotta you gotta figure out how to reinvent the wheel with a whole other set of folks um and uh I, I don't know necessarily if lightning could strike twice in that case that I could make something that could work in a way that, that kind of felt right and honest um again it might it, it, in this case this might be a young writer's game mm-hmm. um that was coming to it from a place where uh you know, a lot of things that I probably did in Exiles, uh, I never got an opportunity to do again. And there's other times I probably did them, you know, another 50 times over because I had a decade of uh, writing superhero comics. And that's where I learned some of these things. So I don't know. A lot of bad habits might come in. I will say this. Um, I, I like to think that throughout my books, even when I, um, even when I might have run short on plot, uh, which sometimes happens in superhero comics, um, it is what carries you through is these great characters. Um, and in this case, I was lucky because I got to create the characters. So, um, but thank you. I'm, I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it and still enjoy it. It was it was a, it was it was a fine run that still I'm still quite proud of. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much, Judd. And again, I'm, I'm sure we'll have you on next year when the next Hilo book comes out. But uh, it's always a pleasure having you on. Thank you, sir.
sir. It's always terrific talking to you. You be well. Be well.